0: Welcome to Cars Yeah! show number 2,237. We continue this week with our in-memoriam shows. Today I'm going to bring you a replay of my talk with the great Quick Vic, Vic Elfert. What a racer, what a life. I hope you enjoy this show. Be prepared to be
1: inspired. No matter what the car, uh, what I was driving in, I always expected to win. (laughs) This is Cars
0: Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello automotive enthusiasts. Today I am so excited to introduce a very special guest, Vic Elford. Vic? Vic? Are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride?
1: Oh, absolutely. I ready to go.
0: All right. Great to have you here. Vic Elfert was one of the fastest drivers of the 60s and 70s and is a racing icon in Porsche's history. He's arguably the most versatile all around driver of all time, and he's raced and won pretty much every motoring event in Europe and the United States, including the Monte Carlo Rally, the Daytona 24 Hours, Targa Florio, Nürburgring 1000 kilometers sebring and the european rally championship and then he moved to formula one can-am trans-am off-road racing in africa and even nascar in addition to porsche vicks race for almost every mark and and set speed records and lap records around the globe he drove for steve mcqueen in the movie le mans he's authored books narrated michael kaiser's film the speed merchants and he still participates in many motoring and vintage racing events today Vic, I've told our listeners just a little bit about your incredible history in racing. Would you take a moment and share a little bit more about your history, your career, your interests, and your passion for automobiles?
1: Well, uh, you already gave a a broad outline. It's very difficult to know where to go from there because, as you (laughs) said, it all interests me. Yes. Where where do we start? I suppose we have to go all the way back to the beginning when I was... uh, uh, you know, I was born before World War Two, so I'm getting quite ancient now. <laughs> Today, of course, it's different. Today, when the, the kids who are passionate about motor racing or, or, or who start to be interested in motor racing, uh, they're, if, if they're that interested, they can now be driving go-karts almost before they can walk. Sure, But back in my day, that sort of thing didn't exist. There You know, the, the only people who went motor racing back then were wealthy young gentlemen who could afford it. The idea of actually... Being a professional driver was just like a, you know, a pie in the sky dream. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, it, it started right after World War Two. My father, who prior to the war had actually been quite a, a good road racing cyclist. Oh wow! So I guess to a certain extent, racing was there in my blood to be just stirred up a little bit. And in 1949, Formula One Grand Prix racing. Came back to life again after the war, and my one, well, my dad took me to see the very first ever British Grand Prix after after World War Two. Oh wow! We sat in sat in the grandstands at uh, Stoke Corner, which is still there. It's still part of the track, and I remember seeing those marvelous, colorful, noisy, fantastically fast machines coming down hanging Straight toward me. Uh, I was 14 years old then. Yeah, I was actually just about 13 and a half years old.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And I saw that, heard it, and said, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> of course, at that time, I had no idea because it was just a dream, you know. Sure. People couldn't go motor racing, but they, but they kept the dream alive, and uh, ultimately it happened.
0: Well, how did you get into that first step of being involved in motor racing? There must have been some... Some pivotal moment or or thing that happened that enabled you to do that.
1: Oh, there was indeed, absolutely. My my best friend in in high school uh, was a, a guy named Alec Rhodes, and uh, we were friends for oh, many years in high school. And one day, his mother won a sort of um, a small edition of the the jackpot. Oh, okay. There was a big sweepstake in the United Kingdom then called the Irish Sweepstake, and it was uh, it was rather like uh, uh, the, the lotteries. You know, it was yes. there for a purpose. In Florida, for example, our Florida lottery is for education, mm-hmm. and in the in the case of the Irish Sweepstake, it was a it was a, a hospital sweepstake. All the profits went to hospitals in Northern Ireland. Okay, and his mother won a portion of that. I mean, not a multiple multi million dollar portion but enough so that my friend Alec finished up with a nice new MGTF sports car out of the deal. All right. And he was interested, he wasn't mad about it, but he was interested in motorsport, as indeed was I, so he decided he would uh, start doing rallies. And to do rallies, he needed a, a navigator co-driver, so being his best friend, I got the job. <laughs> so at least I was sitting in a rally car, not on the, on the correct side of the of the car but at least I was in it. Yes. And then from there I moved on to another partner David Siegel Morris who was a friend for many years who had greater ambitions staying that in other words he wanted to go to international rallies and so I was with him uh, for a, a couple of years uh, and eventually we would drive we drove for the Triumph factory team and then for the BMC British Motor Corporation factory team in Minis and uh, Austin he Healey 3000s, and mm-hmm. uh, I made no secret of the fact that I preferred to be a driver. I was I was there because I could do it being a co-driver, and eventually, Marcus Chambers, who was the well-known then well-known uh, boss of BMC the, uh, Rally Team and competitions, fired me. I later learned that the reason, he, well, he told me he fired me because he didn't want co-drivers who wanted to be drivers. <laughs> and then later on, he told me that one of the reasons he fired me was because he felt that I needed a push to actually get on doing something on my own.
0: Yeah,
1: And was one way of making sure it happened.
0: Wow, very cool.
1: As part of the deal, prior to being fired, we, I had already told him that, that uh, I had uh, saved up enough money and I wanted to buy one of the X factory minis. Oh. Not even the Mini Cooper, just the original 850 Mini that we were driving then. He uh, promised he would sell me one as soon as it became available. Uh, and he kept his word. He sold me the car. He put in a a, race, a new brand new racing engine in it for me so that I could go racing. So my very first race car was a, a, an X-Works 850 Mini, which cost me £300.
2: <laughs> wow. Wow.
1: <at the> <laughs> Uh, Well, in those days, the pound was at about $2.40 to a a pound. So that actually cost me, my first race car, cost me about $700. Wow. Uh, And I won my first race in it, and then I did more races. I think I did did six or seven races in my first season, uh, and won, uh, if not all of them, at least some of them. Then we got to the end of the year, and I had to sell the car to pay my bills. Mm -hmm. But at least you know I got my foot on the first rung of the ladder.
0: Yes. Oh, what a wonderful story! Thank you for sharing that. That is absolutely fantastic. So, in a way, even though your friend's mother won the jackpot, you won the jackpot because it got you into racing. Very cool.
1: Absolutely. That, that's. Uh, I guess that's a that's a nice analogy to give to put to it.
0: Yes. Yes. Absolutely. As we continue on your journey, Vic, I always like to start by asking my guests for a success quote, and this is something that's been instrumental in forming your life and your success. It's a great way. To get the inspirational tires turning here on cars yeah so vic take the wheel
1: all i can think of is is, is just not aiming for the moon that's not quite it but i guess it is to a certain extent uh, because right from the word from the word go in my case and the, in the case of other drivers around that era you know we, there was no yardstick by which to measure ourselves we only we could only establish some sort of wish for the future and aim for it
0: Yes, I
1: guess mine perhaps was a little bit higher than most people might have been, uh, and I managed to reach it, at least most of it. That's all I can say, really.
0: Well, definitely that shoot for the moon mentality has served you well because you have driven in so many different types of cars and events that it seems that you just kept shooting for the moon and shooting for the moon. How have you taken that shoot for the moon outlook or mantra or saying forward in your career throughout your life?
1: And always keeping a positive attitude. One, For example, one of the things that Anita has, uh, and other people have asked me in the past, especially her, her, I guess, was how did I feel driving, shall we say, what I knew to be a a less than competitive car, for example. Oh, yes. In, in, a, in any particular event. My answer to that was always, well, no matter what the car, uh, what I was driving in, I always expected to win. Ah. Because even if I was driving an inferior car, I expected my, by my own admission, I mean, I wouldn't say this publicly, but I would always assume or, or believe myself that I could, I could produce uh, better driving in that car than anybody else in whatever they were driving. So I was capable of winning. So I always, anytime I started a race... Uh, with, I guess, well, only one or two tiny exceptions, I honestly expected to, if not win, at least do very well because I thought I was capable of doing it, even if the car on its own wasn't.
0: Ah, excellent. I love that. Would you share a story with me, Vic, that instigated your passion for cars? Is there one pivotal moment in your life that you realized, I am a car guy, I want to be a racer?
1: That was that first first trip to Silverstone when my, my dad took me to see the very first British Grand Prix. Ah,
0: okay. Wonderful. It, it wasn't
1: actually, it wasn't the first world championship. The first world championship for Formula One actually started in 1950. And, and this was in 1949 when there were a few, I don't honestly remember how many races, but a, a few of the, you know, old pre-war Formula One races were being uh, re-established to get the sport going again. And that was just one of them.
0: Fantastic. So, Vic, what I'd love to do now is take a look at some of the roads you've driven down and ask you to share a huge challenge or even a great failure that you faced in your career. But the most important part of this question has to do with how you overcame that situation. And, of course, what did you learn from it?
1: You know, it's all, it all comes back to what I've already said a couple of times, just aiming further than I can see mm-hmm. and and... Doing everything I can to get there. First of all, I'm, I'm lucky. I didn't have too many accidents. I had a few, but but uh, but not too many. So I didn't crash very often. Uh, and occasionally the car broke. Uh, and when the car broke, it was just sort of resignation, you know. Uh, it happened more than once, and, and in some cases it was just a question of shrugging shoulders and saying, "Well, you know, tough." They it, it, it look to the next uh, next one. But on one occasion, actually, this is, is more than just one occasion. And, and this isn't actually quite covered by your questions, mm-hmm. but it is, as you'll understand as I talk about it. Wonderful. Way, way back in the, in the mid-60s, I had been, this was 1966, actually, I'd been driving for Ford of Britain for three years, and I'd had a you know, fair, fair amount of success. And then through 65, and particularly into 66, we were driving new Lotus Cortinas uh, in the rally program. And I guess Paul was really trying to do too much with too little at the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And things just started to go wrong. And when things at that level start to go wrong, they tend to be like a snowball. Oh. Rolling downhill. They just get bigger as they go along.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: For example, I won the Rally of the Flowers in Italy in a Lotus Cortina, which was then the, the Italian National Rally. And I promptly got disqualified because Ford had made mistakes on the amalgamation papers. Oh, no. Then it went on like that through the year in uh, the Coupe des Alpes, which had been always my favorite rally of all time because it was pure driver skill, rushing up and down mountains all around the French Alps against the clock. And I led the entire way uh, until literally I'm 20 miles from the finish. Not only was I leading in the touring car category with Lotus Cortina up against other, you know, touring cars, Jaguars, etc. I was also, I was leading overall Hmm? in front of my, uh, uh, in front of uh, Ferraris and Porsches and Maseratis. Wow. And 20 miles from the end, the car broke. Oh, no. (laughs) So that was a little bit more difficult to stomach.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: And And there had been a couple of other occasions earlier in the year as well. And I got to the point of, you know, having Ford up to there. Yes.
0: And
1: So the, the the finish was actually in Cannes in France. Mm-hmm. And uh, Hushka von Hanstein, Baron Hushka von Hanstein, who was then competitions manager of Porsche, was there. Porsche did not have any official entries in the rally, the Coupe des Alpes or Alpine rally. Uh, but they were looking after helping a couple of private owners with uh, 911s. I see. And the factory had never entered a 911 in anything. Well, they had once, but only as a little sort of looksee.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, they weren't really interested in the 911, just helping out a couple of private owners. Ah. So I went to ask him if I could go and see him, and, I, and we knew each other vaguely, but not not you know not a great deal at that time. So I went to have lunch with him, and I told him what I, what had been happening at Ford, but of course he knew anyway. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I, I, a, I just got a feeling about the 911. 11 I am positive it's going to be a, a, a winner. And nice. he said, well, my boy, actually, from that moment onwards, he always called me Vicky or my boy or both. <laughs> uh, and he said, well, you know, Vicky, my boy, he said, we don't have a, a rally department. We don't have a budget for rallying. Pierre is not interested in rallying. Uh, so I'm afraid, you know, taking you into a, a rally car is out of the question because it doesn't exist. Uh. So I said, "Well, lend me one. <laughs> yes. Lend me one for the tour of the course, the tour of Corsica, uh, which is later, you know, later in the year, October, November time. Right. And so he went back to Stuttgart, called me after a couple of weeks, said, "Okay, I've got permission. We're going to lend you a car for Corsica. That's all. We'll lend you a car. There'll be a mechanic with a a little bit of uh, assistance, uh, tires, wheels, and that sort of thing. But it's all on your own back, your money. We have no money, so you get no expenses, no fee. It's all for you. Wow. No practice car, nothing. (laughs) Jeez. Just the rally car. Yeah. You know, I was giving up a well-paid job with Ford to take on that risk. Yes. But I was so convinced that it was going to work, I, I agreed so I went off to Corsica, I did a fantastic reconnaissance in, uh, with, with a, a rental car with my co-driver. I was paying all the bills. And then uh, just before the, the event, the, the rally car turned up on a trailer on the, behind a van in the port of Bastia up in the north of Corsica. And there was Christopher von Hanstein, my rally car, a couple of mechanics, and I looked in the back of the van. And there were just a few spares, uh, not easy, just a, a few spare wheels and a, a couple of toolboxes and a jack, and, and that was it. So I said, well, that's very nice, that's good. But when, do, when does the van or something come with the spares?
0: <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> and he
1: said, well, there are no spares. So yeah. I said, well, come on, if I'm going to drive a factory car for Porsche, tell me what, what breaks or what might break, so at least what it does, I knew and I know what it might be. And he said, no, no, no. You, you don't understand. Porsches don't break.
0: <laughs> and there you well, go. After
1: what I'd just been through for three years with Ford, of course I was falling. I was riding in laughter on the ground. Yes,
0: a little sceptical. <laughs>
1: he was absolutely right. And uh, no, no production-based 911 I ever drove ever broke.
0: Wow, what a story!
1: So I, I drove my 911. I'd never even driven a 911 until then. Oh my my first drive drives in a 911 was I, when I took the start line for the Tour of Corsica in Bastia in 1966. Wow. I up against all my French friends, because I li- I, by then, uh, I wasn't living in France, but I already spoke pretty good French, and I liked France, and I got on well with all the French drivers. And in fact, before going to, to Porsche, I'd seriously thought about going to to Alpine Renault, and I, because they knew me, I knew them. Mm-hmm. And then my my mind said, oh, careful, you know, however much they like you, you're still not actually a Frenchman.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so they're going to
1: come first. So that was why I went first to Porsche. But then up against all them driving my 911, I finished third. Wow. On that event. And uh, that set the ball rolling for a whole, you know, a whole a whole future.
0: It sounds like you may have answered my next question about an aha moment in your career because that certainly was sounded like an aha moment but what i was going to ask was was there a moment in time and there was probably many but if you could share one aha moment in your career when something happened you said you know what i think this is really a good idea
1: but but i suppose we have to go back a little bit further back to uh, before i even got my first drive i told you way back when i was driving for british bmc yes Actually, it was even, you know, BMW it was even before that, I think. It was probably with Triumph. I can't remember. But way, way, way back. The driver I was co-driving, navigating for, was uh, an English driver named David Siegel Morris. And uh, I had just got my first car. My first ever car was, was a, an Austin A35. Hmm. Which was, you know, a little bomb at that time. Yeah. Just, it was, it was sli- just before the minis, or about the time of the minis. And I had my little A35, and th- this was actually before we went to BNC, I think, because David Seeger-Morris at that time, his personal car, was a Triumph TR3A. Okay. And at one point, we both were going to drive in a, a hill climb, run by what was then the London Motor Club, And this was a, you know, a a hill climb. I honestly don't remember where it was, how long it was. Just a fairly small hill climb somewhere close to London. I can't remember how many, you know, what what hills there are that require racing up close to London. (laughs) But it was probably like a two or three mile hill climb, probably taking a minute and a half or something like that. Yeah. And, And David and I decided since we were together so much. We would both we would end in both cars, and we would both drive both cars, his and mine. And I beat him in both of them. (laughs) Great. He was the this was my driver, and and so for a long time I'd been telling myself I was going to be a racing driver, and now I was able to say, I guess in your language, aha.
0: Uh Aha! Yes. Now, Vic, I'm sure you've had many proud moments in your career, but is there one in particular that stands out you could share with us?
1: Oh, yeah. Winning the Monte Carlo Rally for Porsche. Ah. Not so much just winning it, but because of the circumstances.
0: And what were those?
1: Well, in 1960, uh, we, I'll go back a bit, 1966, I just had the uh, my first trip in the 911, then uh That led to the whole year, in 1967, driving for the factory and then getting incorporated into the race team as well as rallying. 1967, Monte Carlo, uh, with Porsche. Now, suddenly, they were on my side. Yes. Suddenly, there was a program for a 911, although I was the only one driving one. I was a a one-man band throughout the year. But in Monte Carlo, I led the whole way until the very, very last special stage over the Conde which everybody in rallying knows about. And I caught, got caught with the wrong tyres oh. as, as it snowed. It wasn't supposed to snow, but it did. And I had the wrong tyres and there was no way to, to change those tyres. So I dropped from first place back to third because a couple of the front-wheel drive cars, one Lancia, one Mini, one Mini, they go much better on snow and ice if they got the wrong tyres. They're not as good if they've got the right tyres, but the wrong tyres, they can still keep going quite well, sure. and they passed me.
0: Oh, oh no.
1: So, then, we went through that year, I won more rallies, I was European champion, uh, and everything was going well, and then we went back to Monte Carlo, in 1968, and once again, I was driving, uh, a Porsche 911, now, Porsche had got now two cars, Pauli Toivanen from Finland, was in the other one, my teammate, and, Once again I pulled out all the stops and there was just something about Monte Carlo and Porsa and me that worked and uh, when we got through the whole first part of the rally in Monte Carlo I was uh, leading again or at least right up there in the top and then the last night of Monte Carlo back then it's changed a bit now but the last night was a 400 mile basically a 400 mile road race around the French mountains uh in the Alt maritime uh, team of Maritime Alps just above Monte Carlo. Okay. With uh, two or three runs over the Col de Torini, a couple over the Col de la Creole and other places, all against the clock. Mm-hmm. So, you know, flat out road racing right. at night. Wow. In whatever conditions we were ice and snow and so on. And after the previous year we set off that night and I was I was just all sort of tensed up and nervous. And my co-driver, David Stone, we'd been together a long time then, so we knew each other well. He was a great... He was probably, in those days, one of the two best co-drivers in the world. Awesome. The other one, his name is certainly familiar to. The other one was that man named Jean Todd. Oh, yes. Jean <laughs> you know Todd? Is? Yes. That was at the level at which I put my David Stone. They were the the two best. Jean Todd with the French drivers and David Stone with me. Cool. And then later on with others. But uh, we set off in Monte Carlo. I was all tensed up and a bit nervous, and I actually lost time to my teammate and to even one or two of the Renault Alpine drivers on the first special stage. And then we had a long, long run up of probably an hour and a half drive up, basically main roads, to uh, the little town of Saint-Sauveur before going over the Col de la which which again was one of these up one side and down the other side against the clock.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: and on the way up there David started giving me a lecture and settling me down and he said look we came out last night to check our notes we went over the whole route we know there might be less snow than last night but there cannot be more you know you're the fastest in the mountains anyway don't so forget about any problems just relax forget about last year we know we're going to be unbeatable
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so we set off on this uh, on the Col de la Cuyol, and uh, we, uh, I went on racing tyres, even though we knew there would be some snow and ice in one of t- two patches. Mostly it was going to be dry or just damp. And we blew everybody away. I t- I went a, a minute quicker than the next car. Wow. The 17-minute section. Nice. And when we got to the bottom, I, it took, I, I used to smoke like a chimney back then as well, Mark. But we got to the bottom, it took me about 10 minutes before I could actually get my hands still enough to light a cigarette
2: oh gosh <laughs> we
1: drove off. and so we won the, the rally on that and uh, I guess the proudest moment was then the actual prize giving in front of the, uh, uh, the, the the palace at Monte Carlo up on the hill at the palace itself and and receiving uh, all our trophies from Princess Grace mm. and Prince Renier
2: wow what? and
1: all the, the three little kids as they were then around and that was a real proud moment because i figured for once i had virtually done that on my own
0: yes Wow! because i had
1: developed the car over the previous year when porsche wasn't interested by that time i was literally building my or at least designing my own cars in terms of gearboxes because there were lots of uh, variables available And, uh, with the guy who was in charge at Porsche doing it, I literally was building my own, designing my own cars by then. So I thought this was something I'd really, really done almost, obviously not single-handed, that's not possible, but, uh, leading the whole, uh, the whole parade, if you like.
0: Yes. Oh, wonderful. Fantastic. Let's have a little bit of fun here. You've driven so many different kinds of cars, but is there one in particular that you could call exceptionally special that you drove and raced that you would share with us?
1: Oh, absolutely. This usually starts with the, with this question, which then goes to another. That, the answer to that question is simply the Porsche 917.
0: Ah, yes.
1: To which the next question is, if you're like a real, which one?
0: Yes. Okay, I will ask you, which one? <laughs>
1: well, to which the answer is, believe it or not, all of them.
0: Oh, gosh. <laughs> because
1: the very first 917 in 1969, you know, it, it almost happened by accident because the FIA uh, was concerned about the speeds being reached by by prototypes at Le Mans, especially Le Mans. And so they wanted to cut down on the, on the very, very high top speeds the prototypes were reaching. Mm-hmm. So they decided that prototype race cars would be limited to a three-liter engine limit from 1969 onwards, uh, and so as not to make all of the uh, existing cars—I mean, there were there were Aston Martins, Ford GT40s, for example, big lolas—so as not to make them all obsolete overnight, they created a new category called the sports category, as opposed to prototype. Mm-hmm. And the sports category originally was going to be that the manufacturer had to make a minimum minimum of 50 cars in order to be homologated. Well, Porsche and Ferrari together both said, well, that's a little, you know, that's a little bit too much. So they both went to the FIA together and said, let's make it 25.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the FIA, FIA said, OK, 25. <laughs> so you make 20, you've got to make 25 of these cars and they can have engines up to five litres.
0: Nice.
1: Instead of three liters.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So along came the Ferrari Five yes. Twelve, which uh, had an immediate five-liter engine. The, the Porsche Nine Seventeen, which initially had a four-point-five-liter engine, although it rapidly grew to five liters.
2: Sure.
1: And um, these were the cars. So in sixty-nine, uh, Porsche entered a. Really, only wanted to enter one of these cars for Le Mans, driven by Ross Chastelain. As a, a pure test car, that, knowing that it was going to break after six hours, <laughs> Stommerlund was going to be able to drive it flat out until it broke. Yep. But I was convinced that it was going to be a, a, a winning car as well. So I kept on and on and on to uh, Ferdinand Pieck, who was a good friend of mine. He and I got along together then, nice. and Helmut Bott, who was in charge of that program as well. So let me have one, and uh, they kept saying, "No, no, no, Vic, you want to win more, have a have a 908." And I kept on and on, and eventually they said, "Okay, you can have one, but you know it's going to break." <laughs> and I said, "No, I think if we look after it very, very carefully, we can get it to the end." Yeah. Uh, and yeah. one of the one of the things about it was one of the things that attracted me was its pure speed. You know, at that time the 908 uh, were like everything else. Nobody had ever gone over around 200 miles an hour at that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Including the 908s. They topped out at about 195, 200 miles an hour. But the first 917, even this first nasty, and it was nasty, 917, was capable of around 220 miles an hour. Wow. Uh, It was a pretty nasty car to drive. It wandered all over the road at that speed. Mm -hmm. But it still was... 20 miles an hour quicker than anything else. Uh, my philosophy, along with that of Pierre, was also, I didn't, when we went to Le Mans, for example, we both agreed that the last thing we wanted to do at Le Mans was race. <laughs> yeah. We simply wanted a car that was quicker than everything else, so we didn't need to race.
2: Wow.
1: I wanted to get by the car in front. I didn't have to race him into a corner. I simply waited till the next corner, drove around the next corner, and then drove higher.
0: Man, <laughs> and
1: even with that horrible car, that works. Yeah. And Richard Atwood and I treated it with kid gloves. We treated it gently, 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 and by twenty after twenty-one hours, just less, a little less than three three hours from the end, we were leading by fifty miles.
0: My goodness.
1: Five zero. Yes. And the bell housing cracked. Oh. Jeez. So, so the, 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 the clutch got oil on it and that was the end of our race. But, but that was also a, a pretty proud moment, not just for me, but for, for the Portuguese. Our pit, of course, was right in front of the major grandstand and when that happened, they you know, put the car out of the race. So this German car, driven a, by a couple of Brit drivers, was pushed away by the German mechanics and the entire grandstand stood up and gave it, uh, a round of applause.
0: Uh, what a wonderful story. Huh? I got goosebumps. Fantastic. Now, here's a question for you, Vic. Is there a car that you... Oh, oh, hold on. Oh, Before yes. On, oh, please do. That,
1: that, that was just the first year.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: <laughs> and then I said, you know, that was the first 917 that, that uh, was my favorite car. Then, of course, we went on from there. By the following year, when we were driving all the other races, except them all, everywhere else, we were driving the, the classic short tail coupe cars, uh, which had been developed into arguably the nicest, best, not necessarily the fastest, but well, in some cases, the best race car of all time. They were comp- not easy to drive, but they weren't difficult by racing car standards. They were just wonderful to drive the car. The drivers had tremendous faith in them, tremendous confidence in them. And so that was, you know, at the next step was being... Part of the best car ever, and then the other one, other one was the Longtail 917. In 1970, I was the only one who chose to drive the five-liter Longtail at Le Mans.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And once again, that car stood out because I was the first driver ever to go round Le Mans at an average of over 150 mile an hour in that car. Oh, jeez! So you can see why every single version of the 917 was my favorite car. I uh,
0: I have to say, I understand completely. My goodness, that is incredible. Now, here's a question for you. Is there a car that you've owned in your life that you sold that you really wish you could have back?
1: I was never a um, a collector of cars. You know, I, I drove them, I enjoyed them. For example, when we came to the end of the 917 era, John Wyre, by then was running uh, what was essentially essentially the, the factory team uh, under the golf colours and of course he had quite a number of 917s and we came to the end of the 917 era by the end of 1971 it was no longer uh, a homologated car it was it was you know basically either a crap or a collector's car uh-huh. and John wire was literally coming around to all of us at that time you know arm on the shoulder Vic my boy wouldn't you like to buy a nice 917 oh my gosh look wonderful at home sitting in your garage yes and we're saying yeah John what the hell do you think I'm going to do with a 917 right it would look lovely only $10,000 oh
0: my gosh oh my gosh
1: (laughs) the last time my Sebring winning car was sold I think it was sold for about 4 million
0: yes oh yes cars have just gotten crazy
1: Bruce Cannaberg has got one on I don't know if he sold it but he had one for sale recently and I don't even know what the price was on
0: that. No, but, you, you don't even want to ask. Yeah. <laughs> he still has that car for sale. Yep. Somebody uh, somebody but, with a big and, checkbook will get I'll it. To
1: answer your question. yeah. Um, of all the cars that I've owned, in 1968, Joe Shippard and I were the first to have a contract for the year <laughs> to drive for Porsche. And we weren't paid a lot of money, although we, what we were paid, we thought then was was pretty good. Mm-hmm. By today's standards, it was peanuts. yeah. But we had a, a salary and a car. Nice. And that was my first Porsche that I ever owned. It was a 2.2 litre. It had the sport automatic matic transmission, which I chose because I was actually still living in London then. You know the sport automatic, matic where yes. you, you change gear but didn't have a clutch pedal. Right. I just loved that car. And so I think if I could go back, and it still exists. it Now it belongs to some people that I know quite well in England. Oh, and they've had it for donkey's years. If a guy could go back and have one single car that I ever owned, it would be that one.
0: Awesome. Now here's a very introspective question for you, Vic. If you were, and I'm going to say, I ask most of my guests if you were a car, but I'm going to ask you, if Vic Elford was a race car, which race car would he be?
1: Then I think uh, that's comparatively easy. I never actually got to it yet, but we would have done ultimately. I would have been a 917-30 Porsche Can-Am car.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) So that car was never created.
1: I'm the only driver who ever drove every single version of the 917.
0: Oh, my goodness. I didn't know that. Wow.
1: I drove the very first undrivable monster that we talked about earlier. Yep. 1969. Then I drove the short tails in 1970. You know, from then on. But then in 1971, seventy one I drove the five liter long tails at Le Mans. And then later on, uh, I only drove. I did it a one-off race. But I I drove the 917 30 uh, Can-Am car in one of the Inter serie Can-Am type races in in Europe at Hockenheim mm-hmm. and I won.
0: Wow, very oh, the cool.
1: Person who drove them all, and that car was that was the absolute ultimate.
0: Oh, fantastic. All right, Vic, we're about to enter the last lap. But before we do, here's a little something for the Cars Yeah listeners. Do you love vintage cars? Then go to CarsYeah.com and get a free copy of the fantastic Filler Up book. It's a full-color ebook filled with fuel filler fun, with over 60 color photographs of vintage cars plus inspirational quotes from some of the most famous automotive enthusiasts of all time. Simply go to CarsYeah.com and click on the free book button on the homepage. Download your free filler-up book today at Cars Yeah. All right, Vic, we're entering what I call the last lap here, and this is where I'm going to fire off a series of questions to you and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So are you ready to go?
1: I'm ready. I'm just looking at your little list of the last lap. Okay, awesome. I'll, I'll try and do it. Okay, okay. all right.
0: What is the best automotive advice you ever received?
1: It might well have been Marcus Chambers, the competition manager at BMC, as I told you, who fired me mm-hmm. because I wanted to be a driver, and he didn't want drive, You know, uh, he didn't want co-drivers who wanted to be drivers, and. Basically telling me he fired me so that I would actually go and get on with it and do it on my own. There you go. I needed a push to go and do it.
0: Would you share with me one of your personal habits that you believe has contributed to your success?
1: I guess this goes back to rallies originally, but it carries over into racing too, circuit racing. I was always, always looking for absolute 100% success. Hmm. In rallies, for example, that came down to pace notes. I'm not going to go into detail because we'll be here for another half now. <laughs> but, but the pace notes that I used uh, with my friend and co-driver David Stone, had actually they'd been started by BMC originally, but then we took them over basically and carried on. The, and we developed them to such a point that we were unbeatable on them. And even in today... In today's uh, World Championship rallying, the Scandinavians, or the British drivers, they all tend to use what are basically, or were basically the, the, the notes that David Stone and I created. Wow. The Europeans, the French in particular, and the Italians, they use a different system. But my system is one that is still used by the British and the Scandinavians. Wow. To give you an example of what we meant by perfection one time i think it was 1972 or 73 i don't remember which year i was driving a ferrari daytona in the tour de france now a ferrari daytona as i'm sure you know the racing version anyway is a monster car yes noisy uh, a real uh, well I, I'm, I'm not being rude here but a real man's car it was a real a real handful yes and we had one special stage this uh, on the tour de france there were probably six seven eight 10 racetracks that we used to go to all around the cross. And this wasn't a day and night thing. We would drive, we would race on a track for an hour, race, and we'd drive off somewhere else. And we would have probably about 10 one-hour races and then interspersed with that a number of uh, rally-type special stages, which usually meant running, racing up one side of a mountain and going down the other side. So there was no advantage to being a big car or a small car. You know, it evened itself out. Yeah, and on one one occasion we had a special stage down in the Pyrenees mountains, in you know on the Spanish-French border, and this was a, a, a mountain I'd never seen it, I'd never been there. Wow! David went down there, uh, took a rental car, a little portable, um, you know, speakerphone type thing, recorded his own, read out or, or created pace notes driving up and over the, the mountain, mm-hmm. went back to the hotel, wrote them out. And then went back driving one-handed, driving one-eyed, while he's reading out pace notes to himself as he went and collecting, correcting them until he got them as as you know as perfect as he could. Sure. And then, and that was it. I'd never seen the thing. I had absolute total trust in our notes and him reading them. And we did this test at around six o'clock in the morning. It was misty. It was raining, foggy. There was Georgia type red clay mud running across the road, which was not the ideal situation for our Ferrari Daytona. No bet. And we set the fastest time.
0: Wow. <laughs> it worked.
1: <laughs> so, you know, that, that's another of those personal habits, if you like, this uh, quest for perfection, which we attained on yes. that occasion.
0: Oh, fantastic. Now, I know there are a lot of resources these days with the Internet, but is there one in particular you're really fond of, maybe a website that you enjoy or maybe a blog that you get on a regular basis you could share with our listeners?
1: There is one magazine that I I recommend. Okay. Yeah, And that's a British magazine called Motorsport.
0: Yes, wonderful.
1: Which is, in my opinion, without doubt the best all-round motorsport magazine in the world.
0: Yes, yeah. It is. I've subscribed to that magazine for years. I really enjoy it. Now, how about books? I, I know this could be tough, but is there one book in particular that you think our listeners should get their hands on?
1: Absolutely. Mine.
0: <laughs> and what is the title of your book? Would you share that?
1: I, I wrote two. The, the, first, the first one, way, way back, this is over 20 years ago, uh, I'm sure you know the, the author, Randy Leffingwell, who, who is a fountain of, of books, especially about Porsche. Yes. Way, way back, I think, it, actually, in 1993, Randy Leffingwell wrote a book called Porsche Legends, and he asked me to write the foreword for it, which I did. And when he'd sent his manuscript to what was then Motorbooks, Motorbooks came back to me and they said, Look, you write very well. We've read the old foreword. Thank you very much. Uh, why don't you write a book for us?
2: Cool.
1: And they came up with one or two possi- possi- possible ideas on history. I said, no, I can't do that. You know, people like Randall England, there's no way I, I could compete with with authors of that calibre. And so Book said, well, why don't you, because everybody talks about this as being difficult, write a How to Drive a Porsche book. Hmm. So I said, okay, I'll do that. That's, I can do that. So I wrote a book called The Porsche... High-Performance Driving Handbook. And it was published in February 1994. Nice. It still sells.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now,
1: in February 2015, it is still selling. Wonderful. As a, and, and selling well. After all this time, it's, it's, uh, it's now in its second edition. The first edition lasted for a long, long time. I updated it with a second edition... I guess, I don't honestly remember when, but it was about, uh, without leaving you, and going to look, I can't remember. But probably around 10 years ago. Yeah. And I went down to the Porsche driving school in, uh, in Alabama and went through driving all of their latest models, you know, to get used to the, the upgrades in electronics and hydraulics and so on. Mm-hmm. And it's, although it's called the Porsche High Performance Driving Handbook, it's actually, a, it's, it's about driving everything, no matter what you drive. Whether you drive a rear-wheel drive 911 uh, or a front-wheel drive Honda Accord or whatever, anything else in between, it covers absolutely every aspect of driving, driving safely and driving fast.
0: Wonderful. Well, I have both your books on my library shelves. They're fantastic. And I'll, I'll tell our listeners here, you can find links to all these resources, including these two great books, at CarsYad.com vic Elford. All right, Vic, we're up to the checkered flag. And this last question can be a real doozy for some people. If you could have only one collector car in your garage, but don't worry about the price because today I will buy you whatever you'd like. What would that one vehicle that you would choose be (laughs) and why?
1: Well, after all I've talked about it and said about it. I'm trying to re- I'm trying to think which one it would be. <laughs> um, I
0: know it's difficult. With
1: well, it w- actually actually it's actually two cars, which are actually one car. Okay, uh, I'll explain. In 1970, I drove the very first and only uh, five liter longtail at Le Mans.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Gerard Larousse drove a longtail in the hippie colors, but his was with, with the smaller four point five liter engine. Okay. I drove mine with the five-liter engine. It, it's it's in the McQueen Steve McQueen film because I led the first lap. Obviously, it's shown in the uh, I was on pole position, and uh, it's shown in the McQueen film. It's white with red flashes on the front and on the rear uh, winglets and so on. Mm-hmm. And it, as I said earlier, with that, with that car, I was the first ever to lap Le Mans at over 150 mile an hour average. Wow. Then. Fast forward to 1971, and I was again driving a five-liter 917 longtail. In it was number 21. In my opinion, perhaps the most beautiful race car ever built in the Martini racing colours.
2: Oh yeah.
1: As I say, longtail number 21. I've got I've got it sitting on my wall just behind me, actually. And uh, in fact. It would be those two, but those two are in fact the same car.
0: Oh, very cool. Two and one.
1: Not too many people know it, but the 1970 car, which ran as a pure, almost pure white with red flashes car in the Austrian colors, then became the Martini car in the beautiful Martini colors. And so that is the car, if I was going to buy it, keep it, never sell it again, it would be that car as it appeared in the second edition in the
0: martini colors. Oh, wonderful choice. And great story behind that choice, too. Fantastic. Vic, you have taken me on a great ride today, and I have so enjoyed your stories. I knew this would be a fantastic discussion. And I want to thank you for sharing your journey with me and the Cars listeners. Is there one parting piece of guidance you might offer our listeners before you drive off down the racetrack in that martini 917?
1: (laughs) Just a summary of everything, of pretty well everything we've been talking about. Whatever, you, whatever it is you're aiming at, whether it's driving a race car or flying an aeroplane or sailing a boat or anything else for that matter. I, when I was a kid, I was my parents insisted because it was the thing to do. My parents insisted I learned to play the piano, <laughs> huh. which was an absolute disaster because I'm I'm not in the slightest bit musical in any way whatsoever. And so I had to go to weekly lessons and try and learn to play the piano. Mm-hmm. It didn't work, of course, partly because there was no intention of, on there was no there was no passion there on my, my part in my on my part to learn to play the piano. Yep. So I, I think whatever it is you want to do, make sure you, it's pick the thing you want to do, and how and more or less how you want to do it, and just go go for it. Go so for keep it up until you get there.
0: Yes, fantastic advice. And- What's the best way for our listeners to follow what you're doing these days? You mentioned you had a website.
1: Yes, I have a website. My website is vicelford.com.
0: Wonderful, it's wonderful.
1: Just, oh. just vicelford.com, and if people forget, they just type me into Google, and you'll find me. And my wife runs a Facebook page as well. Wonderful. Oh, you know about it because you've been talking to her on Facebook.
0: I do. I do, so, and I'll make so
1: you, you can tell your listeners how to get there. Because I have no idea. I have (laughs) no idea how Facebook
0: works. That's okay, absolutely. Listeners, you can find links on Vic's show notes page at carsyad.com slash Vic Elford. Just put Vic into the search bar. His show notes page will pop up. You can find links to his Facebook page, and you can find his website and follow what Vic is up to. Vic, thank you so much for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and for sharing your experiences with me and the listeners. It's been an absolute treasure for me today. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. Hold on. I would like to say just thank you as
1: well, Mark. Thank you for getting to me. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, I know it's been you and me talking, but I can almost feel people out there listening to what we're talking about.
0: Absolutely. Uh,
1: it's always a great pleasure to, to know that people are listening and hopefully, hopefully, enjoying some of the things we're talking
0: about I'm sure you're very welcome I'm sure they're going to enjoy this a great deal Our pets are a big part of our family and we love to take them everywhere we go, but they can be very hard on your vehicle's interiors. If you add the fall and winter weather, you'll end up with water, mud, snow, and a whole lot more that Fido tracks into your cars. Covercraft offers a wide variety of solutions to protect your vehicle's interior from fall and winter's rough treatment in Fido's too. Canine cargo area covers are padded for your pet's comfort and provide door to door protection. Pet pads have built in features to keep cargo areas and seats well protected, and they're easy to clean. Covercraft's quality pet solutions cover cargo areas, bucket or bench seats and protects from the damaging claws, pet fur, hair, mud, moisture, drool from permanently damaging your vehicles. Choose from a variety of styles and covers for almost every vehicle made. And here's a special deal for you Cars Yeah listeners. If you use the code ya 21 at Covercraft.com, you'll get 10% off your Covercraft order. What a deal. Covercraft, protecting the things that move you and making life a lot easier with the pets we love so much. Covercraft. 9324 and protect the ones you love, like I did, with American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. For several years now, you've heard me talk about Linkage Magazine. I've been a subscriber since the start. Their talented and creative team brings you a spectacular publication and website that shares the automotive passion from a worldwide perspective. Linkage is about driving, restoring, collecting, and first-hand experience at collector car auctions and more. They bring you real-world values plus rational, experienced opinions on the current markets. They cover the automotive world and the people who share our passions. And Linkage Magazine has grown, mailing you six issues annually. Join me on this journey with Linkage. They're geared for the automotive life. You can subscribe at LinkageMag.com.